This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. It's the Mayor's Town Hall. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger is with us here in studio. And uh, we will go to your phone calls, your comments, your uh, tweets, of course, and your emails. 905-645-3221 is the number. 905-645-3221. If you're on a cell phone, toll free. Start 9900. Email bkelly at 900chml.com. And, of course, on Twitter at chmlbillkelly. Your comments for Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger, your questions for the mayor, and we'll go to your phone calls in just a couple of seconds. But if you want to jump on right now and get into the queue, by all means, do so. Good morning, sir. How are you today? I am great. Thank you. Uh, just uh, after a couple of days, well, we saw you, of course, at uh, Gore Park on Saturday. That was quite an event. I I'm, I'm continue to be impressed on an annual basis with how big the crowds are and, and the diversity of that crowd every time we do that ceremony. Yeah, you know what? Uh, it seems that the uh, the younger folks are coming out and uh, re- you know remembering like everyone else and obviously curious about... Uh, those ages and times that, uh, you know, many of us, uh, you know, remember somewhat and uh, others live through, very few that are left that uh, live through that. So it's a, it's a matter of passing on that knowledge and understanding of the, the horrors of what happened in World War One and World War Two, And I, I, as we said then, and I think it's also a good time to reflect on, uh, you know, the folks, uh, people in this world, about 20, 30, 40 million people that are living in refugee camps, uh, fleeing, fleeing from more torn areas. So... It's uh, it's certainly a good day to reflect on all of that, uh, all of that nasty stuff. Yeah, and and get into some of the finer points of those debates, uh, because those people in refugee camps are not to be feared, as some political leaders would no. have us think no. uh, that uh, they're to be helped. And uh, we've we've done our part. And I, I yeah. mentioned on Saturday, but it's worth repeating. Uh, Hamilton City Council, for their to their credit, has done a great job and, and made a great commitment toward that goal. We did, and uh, we had uh, some. 1,400 Syrian uh, Syrian families come to Hamilton, and uh, and uh, I think the door is still open for you know additional refugees that are coming every year. But we did uh, you know a, an unusual intake, uh, and uh, you know mission services, uh, Wesley Urban Ministries, uh, you know are all, all, every year they're working on uh, bringing people in from uh, for war torn areas. So we we do have a regular quota, but this was over and above and. Really delighted the way uh, Hamilton opened its arms and welcomed these folks. It's fascinating uh, because you see them. We heard the story, of course, when when the council made that decision and started accepting them. And I actually bumped into a couple of the families when I was going through the Sheraton on some business uh, back around those times, too. But now they're starting, you see, integrated into the community. We had the debate a few months ago. Uh, about Hess Street School with the Board of Education, what they were going to do with this. Yep. And and a number of the families that expressed some concern and interest in this were actually some of these refugee families that have settled in the downtown core, started going to that school, and look at that as a community hub. And to their credit, the Board of Education acknowledged that in modifying their approach to this whole thing. Yeah, they're, they're, I mean, I think everyone's done a great job. And, and you know, they've, they've virtually integrated. So uh, I see the families from time to time. They're no longer living in assisted housing. They're out in the broader community. Uh, uh, getting employed and uh, brushing up on their language, the kids are are amazing to watch. So the uh, you know you see the smiles on their faces. They're the happiest kids in the world. They're so grateful for for being here, and they are determined to be uh, successful in, in in their studies and in this country. And that that is really an amazing to see. Lots of stuff to talk about here with Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. Your questions, your comments at nine zero five six four five thirty two twenty one. And start nine nine hundred. Uh, you and I were down at Gore for the Remembrance Day ceremonies at the Cenotaph, and uh, we uh, 
obviously both noticed, of course, the big hole in the ground uh, right at the corner of Houston and King that used to be the Kresge's building. Yep. Uh, Leuda is involved in that right now. I, I had one individual came up to me on Saturday and expressed some concern. Oh, we don't want high rises downtown. Well, I, I kind of think we do. What are your thoughts on that? Um, you know, right downtown, I think it's the, the, the right place to have a, a high rise. And we're talking 30 stories, 20 to 30 stories. And, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not, O- overly fond of uh, high-rise buildings. I think mid-rise uh, works best, but in the downtown core and, uh, you know, bringing that volume of people downtown has long been the mission. Uh, it is now happening in a big way. Uh, not only is the unit building, but, uh, you know, the the Vranich Group is uh, is building and a number of others, uh, do, are the Urban Core Group are you know, revamping buildings. I mean, there's work going on everywhere, not only downtown, in fact, throughout the entire city. But uh, Leuna has, uh, you know, not not only uh, did the Lister block, but uh, is finishing up on the Thompson building, which is about 400 uh, student uh, residents there. And then they're going to develop this uh, this twin tower of uh, one one for sale and the other one uh, as a rental that is going to bring, uh, you know, lots of additional people into the inner city. And that's always been the mission. Uh, get more people living there, and that would uh, that uh, revitalizes the the businesses that are down there. Provides them an opportunity to uh, to grow their businesses because there's a lot more people to to be able to access them, and brings vibrancy to our downtown that we've long said needs that kind of activity and vibrancy. So I'm delighted with what they're doing. Uh, we'll we'll finalize the plans with Leona. They're not quite finished in terms of the final final plan. Are you concerned about things like zoning? No, no, the zoning's uh, all sorted out. It's just a matter of doing the site plan issues, and uh, and uh, I think that'll happen in early January, and then they're they're off and away and get their get the next building up and going. And Connaught uh, just finished their they're occupied, and they're uh, starting on phase two and uh, looking to uh, to sell phase two, and that is also a, a condominium development there. I believe about 20 stories is there as well. So, uh, you know, lots going on downtown, and I think it's very positive. I, I don't know the, the chicken and egg argument here, but I remember years ago, uh, King William Street was always, when I was a kid, I was one of my favorite spots. So I, my dad's barber was there, my, my uncle, uh, uh, the Reardon family, of course, and my cousin yeah. Paul Reardon ran that store for many, many years, of course, on King William Street. Your cousin? Yeah, well, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, I see Paul all the time. We're all know. family. Oh, okay. <laughs> Reared isn't Kelly's. Yeah, well, oh, okay. it's the Irish. Yeah, yeah, aye. But here's the deal. Uh, it got at one point to be a very dark and foreboding and not very inviting place, King William Street, because of some vacancies, some other things that happened. The right house went out of business. Uh, and I, I've noticed over the last number of years now, over the last six or seven years especially, uh, Core Urban has invested heavily in that, of course, and done mm-hmm. some revitalizations. Now, of course, that place is full of restaurants. The city of and Leuna and the provincial government partnered, of course, uh, with Lister Block. Yep. That's a vibrant street now. It's amazing to see that transformation. It's getting back to uh, what it was, uh, you know, many, many, many decades decades ago. So as you said, uh, you know, I, I had uh, my, my, my mother's hairdresser was in the Lister Block and uh, on the second floor with, in, in the rounded window. Uh, the Lister Block and at one point was the place to be, the, the place to shop, the place to have a business. Uh, that whole the whole strip is now transformed and really gone back to that revitalized uh, area that uh, people want to live in, people want to visit, people want to enjoy the restaurants. Uh, it has become a magnet for the, the kind of activity that Leuna is actually developing, which is a, a residential enclave as well, where people want to be close to those activities. So it's, uh, it's the kind of transformation that you want to see happen in your inner city. 
and uh, and you also want to see that happen in other nodes around the city. So you know our no, our nodes and corridors approach really talks about not only doing it downtown Hamilton, but downtown Stony Creek, downtown Waterdown, uh, downtown Ancaster. All of them are getting development happening that actually brings vibrancy and and, and vitality back to their inner core. So all all very positive uh, initiatives. And if we do it right, not not overbuild but build to the, to the point where uh, we get some level of saturation and, and volume of people there to be able to access all of these businesses, then it will continue to thrive. I'm going to go to your calls. They're starting to stack up, and uh, we'll uh, get you on for uh, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger in just a couple of seconds. Uh, one quick uh, tweet, though, that I wanted to get to, and i get your response to this, Mr. Mayor, and then yep. we'll start going to the phone calls. Uh, from Casey said, uh, could you please ask the mayor about uh, uh, Premier Wynn and LRT? said she was going to be working very closely with the city on this, uh, and so far we have heard nothing yet about the city request, et cetera, et cetera. Where is that uh, right now? Yeah, well, so last I heard, uh, they, were, they anticipated giving an answer within a week or so. Uh, that was about a week and uh, a bit ago. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll get a, a final answer. This is now through the Minister of Transportation. Uh, to be fair... This was not an issue that came from them. Uh, this this issue came from council, kind of at the last minute. So it certainly caused them to uh, to rethink uh, the the process in terms of operation and maintenance. But uh, I expect that uh, that in uh, and, you know hopefully the, the the next little while we're going to get an answer from them so we can get on with uh, next steps. Everything is continuing to move forward, so there's no there's no slide back here at this point. The only time that uh, a slide back will happen is if there's a, a positive answer and we have to go back out for RFQ. Uh, I would say that we w- would lose about three three months of time, but uh, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I don't think that's particularly uh, onerous. Nine zero five six four five thirty two twenty one star nine nine hundred. Let's go to your phone calls, your questions, your comments. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger is here in studio. This is the Mayor's Town Hall on the Bill Kelly Show on nine hundred CHML. Frank, your first step this morning. How are you, Frank? I'm very fine, thank you. Uh, good morning to you both. Um, good morning, Frank. Mr. Mayor, on the um, bicycling in in town on our main thoroughfare on our streets. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was a young lad. Um, we had licenses on our bicycles, a um, little tag you put on the back above, just below the seat, and you, you could be identified. Right. Um, we don't seem to have that in place anymore, um, and I think it should be. Uh, I'll give you a case in point here. If uh, I or you were to encroach on a bicycle rider in the lane and uh, obstruct them or even hit them uh, mistakenly, um, we would be uh, identified. They would know who we were. We would be by license or mm-hmm. even by the fact we stopped, and we'd have to, and if it brought, brought the police into a matter, we'd have to identify ourselves. Right. But in a case, in, in a reverse case, is a bicycle rider slid by my car and scrapped it or yours or got in the way, they could actually just take off and not even be identified. Why is it that we haven't considered or counsel? Are we not like, or are we just trying to stay form with other cities? And, and I've even seen motorized vehicles right along that little uh, yep. scooters. And pe- these aren't licensed. Uh, can you give me your take on that, please? Uh, so I, I don't think that's a bad idea. I think we've kicked this around a few times, and it's uh, been kind of rejected because it's a, a, an onerous thing to do. There's a lot of bikes out there that are used from time to time, and I, I, I think the, uh, the view was that it would be uh, not, not as productive as, uh, as it could be in terms of providing identification that's so small and so so insignificant to see that uh, it would be hard to track. 
And, you know, if a bike's flying by you, uh, you know, at speed, uh, and they happen to scrape your car, and if they keep going, it's going to be very hard to, to, to notice that little little tag that I remember having on my well, bike uh, many, many years okay. ago. Well, let's, let's just substitute that little tag for another means of identification. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I even think that even on the back of the seat, a large uh, number, uh, anything that would be visible, um, I don't want to throw it out on, on that basis. And, and I don't want to throw it out on the fact that it could also be, uh, you know, kind of hard on people that don't want to be paying licenses that don't don't right. frequently use their bikes and on, on and on and on. But I do feel that there's uh, some strong merit here of uh, me, the driver, having to know who that would be uh, who would be obstructing me. And you, and you all know that it costs... Uh, some big bucks to fix a little scratch on a car or anything like sure, that. Sure. Um, so, so I, I, I don't. So Frank, can I, retable this. Uh, sorry, go ahead. I don't think it's a bad thing to look at. So uh, I, I'm not. I'm not adverse to that. Uh, I think it's uh, something to consider. I think the, uh, the 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 will of council or the will of staff has not been particularly positive, but I'm certainly willing to revisit that. Thank you kindly. Okay, thank you. Thanks for the call. Six four five thirty two twenty one star. Nine nine hundred, uh, Vic. You're next on the Bill Kelly Show for Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. How are you, Vic? I'm good. Yourself? Great, thanks. Okay, I just have a couple questions for the mayor. Sure. First of all, good morning, mayor. Good morning. Uh, one is, I'd just like to find out who overlooks uh, constructions on the streets and everything, because um, we had construction done here a couple months ago, uh, sidewalks and uh, mm-hmm. roads and everything, and. They done a terrible job, and I told my neighbors, I said, you watch, I said, this isn't going to last six months. Sidewalks are already cracking, the roads are all cracking to pieces. Uh, one side of the road, they went six inches. The other side to the joint, they went a quarter of an inch. It's splitting apart, uh, and it's just terrible, the, the streets, the job they did. And every time I call uh, Mr. Whitehead's office, uh, they want me to go out and collect the, uh, the the house numbers and the cracks and how many cracks are in front of the houses and everything. I said, well, that's not my job. You have inspectors for this. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and uh, it's it's just terrible. Nothing. It seems like nobody's coming around to do anything about it. And how many how many years ago was this done? It was just done this year. This year. So yeah. so there. I mean, there's warranty work and there's uh, there's a, you know requirement that they uh, they they be inspected and uh, you know the warranty is not. I don't think it's just a year. I think it's a little longer than that for that kind of work. Mm-hmm. So and there should be every reason for somebody to come out there and uh, and check it out and uh, and make sure that uh, these things are made right because uh, we spend a lot of money on these uh, facilities and they need to uh, they need to give us the quality we're looking for. And I talked to the foreman. I mean, uh, they pulled sidewalk out around the side of my house, and I said, "There's nothing wrong with the sidewalk." They said, "Well, we got to take it out because we got to put the new approach in for the blind people." Uh-huh. I said, "That's understandable," but I said, "Why'd you take the whole sidewalk out right. and you left three other wheelchair ramps?" I said, "Sidewalk, you're leaving." A lady was walking her buggy and tripped on the trip. He says, "Well, that's not my problem that they can't lift their feet." Vic, I'd, I'd be happy to uh, look into it for you if you uh, you want to call my office nine zero five five four six forty two hundred. Give me a shout, and I'll uh, I'll have somebody come out and look, and we'll see what uh, we can do to fix it. Okay, and a quick question. This Very quickly, one. I got about fifteen seconds left. Okay, uh, they're bragging that we're uh, pulling in a billion dollars plus a year on bu- building permits, mm-hmm. and you got to be bringing that in on taxes and everything else. What are they doing with all this money? Take a look at the roads. Okay. okay, I'll let uh, I'll let the mayor answer that, and then we'll uh, do a quick break. So, so a billion dollars in building permits is not uh, not money uh, not money to the city specifically. It's probably just the the sheer volume of construction value that happens, uh, you know, in the city of Hamilton. So, 
Um, we're not uh, we're not get, we're not collecting taxes on that yet until they're built, and then we collect taxes on that uh, going forward for you know how many uh, for um, as many years as the building exists. So, it's it's the sheer volume of work that's being done uh, in the city of Hamilton in terms of new construction. Uh, that's what that number means. Uh, the future tax revenues from that, uh, we obviously were going to use to uh, to do the roads and to do uh, the, you know the, the the facility work that uh, we're behind on. So uh, just to clarify that, this is not this is not hard dollars coming to the city of Hamilton. This is just the sheer volume of uh, building construction value happening in the city of Hamilton this year. All right, short time out, and then we're back with your questions, your comments. Uh, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger is here. The Mayor's Town Hall on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Questions, comments for Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger uh, right here on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Back to your phones right now. Dave, uh, thanks for holding on through the break. How are you doing today? Not too bad. Uh, good to talk to you in the mayor today. Uh, Hi, Dave. Exciting time to be in Hamilton. Yeah. Um, I'd like to thank the mayor on uh, his vision and a steady leadership. Well, thanks, guiding, thanks, guiding this prosperity in this new time because that's what we need steady leadership i mean uh, we haven't had a uh, vision for a long long time as you know maybe even back to big cops yeah. but I, I agree uh, these these projects like the what lamb wants to do and the project at the old uh, bus terminal that that really seems like an exciting project for that place yeah thanks, um, thanks I, Dave. I, you're welcome i agree these things are needed in the downtown core for sure yep. and a lot of people get an impression of a city by their skyline when they first drive by it or whatever you can tell if it's a prosperous city or or what have you um so we're slowly checking off all the boxes mm-hmm. to to prosperity and uh you know we just have to keep in toronto's ear and um just wondering um if um you know we're gonna another trade team might be in the works for you and one other question is um are you, uh, on the go, uh, the all-day go uh, situation, which is so vitally important for the right, city, can you right. update me on that? Sure, I didn't hear the first part, Dave. I'm sorry. The uh, the uh, all-day, uh, the tr- yeah, the all-day go. Oh, go train. Oh, oh sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so as you know, or I, uh, I hope you know that uh, that they're uh, spending about two hundred million dollars upcoming at uh, Centennial Parkway for a new go train station there. So the ultimate goal is to get uh, not only you know through Toronto into Hamilton, but all the way to Niagara. Uh, the next one uh, down the road is, I think, 50 Road, which is probably three or four years off. But uh, they're making some st- very significant strategic investments over and above LRT. And uh, on, on, the, on, on that's the plus side. On the unfortunate side, uh, we don't yet see a commitment to all-day go service in the next uh, year or so. So we're, it's probably three years out. But it is, a, uh, um, uh, I think, a, a, the most significant change in terms of connecting Hamilton-Toronto-GTA uh, with with Hamilton, uh, you know, going forward. So I'm hoping that they do this sooner rather than later. That they get full use out of the uh, the investment they made at uh, the waterfront station, and that we uh, we get uh, to that location, uh, you know, sooner rather than later. Uh, all day go service, hopefully in the next year or two. He also mentioned about trade missions. I know you just did one a few yeah. months ago down to South America. I did, uh, and uh, to Colombia, and I think it's important. Uh, so we, we, we actually developed a relationship with Colombia going back to the Pan Am Games. 
when uh, South America came uh, came to Hamilton to uh, to play soccer predominantly, and we uh, we had a partnership with Niagara to to do an economic development drive at that point, uh, dealing with a lot of business people that were coming here, a lot of uh, po- political folks. And uh, really started developing a relationship with a with a, a part of the world that many many uh, North Americans really aren't particularly focused on, and we saw that as a, a really positive and imminent opportunity. So over the years, we've kind of nurtured that relationship, and for the first time, actually made a made a sojourn into Colombia, visiting Barranquilla, Medellin, and uh, Bogota. Looking for partnerships, collaborations, opportunities. We brought some business folks with us, uh, somebody in the logistics and transportation area, another one in the steel fabricating area. And, uh, you know, they saw opportunities there that, both ways that, uh, that uh, could lead to, you know, new investments here in Hamilton. So what Columbia is looking for, a lot of the Colombian businesses, I should say, uh, are looking for expansion of their businesses, probably in areas where there's a safer economy and a more stable economy. Even though their economy is improving significantly and their their government is starting to stabilize, they're still looking to expand into uh, safe havens, and they see Canada as one of them. And certainly for companies here, uh, there is really a lot of opportunity in Colombia for a whole range of, uh, of uh, employment endeavors and business endeavors. So we're going to continue to nurture that relationship. And, you know, if there's an opportunity to, to go to another place where there are real direct business opportunities or economic development opportunities, we'll certainly seize upon that. 905-645-3221, star 9900. Your questions, your comments for Hamilton Mayor. Fred Eisenberger, uh, you saw the uh, story uh, Scott Radley uh, wrote in the Hamilton Spectator over the weekend about uh, his conversation with uh, Bulldogs owner Michael Andlauer mm-hmm. uh, about a new arena. Uh, not a new story. It's been kicked around for the last little while. I know you've had some discussions with Michael about that yep. uh, over the last little while. Uh, got a, a tweet here from Steve. Uh, it says uh, on Twitter at CHML Bill Kelly, uh, what would you like to see happen with the possibility of a new arena and also with First Ontario Centre? Well, I mean, it's a, that's a really big question, and uh, you know, I think there's uh, opportunities to look at the the first Ontario Centre in terms of well, you know, do we need to revamp it? Do we need to uh, you know bring it up to NHL standard, or do we need to rethink uh, the use of the facility and maybe shrink it down? Not unlike what they did with Maple Leaf Gardens. I think that's an exercise that's that got started a little while ago. Is a little bit stalled now because there's a. I think a, a lack of appetite to uh, to dig too deeply into this, but I think it's important. Uh, it is uh, it is not just about the first Ontario Centre; it's about the development in the in the entire area, the the whole precinct area. So I think it's uh, necessary for us to have a look at uh, what what the future of this facility is, and then what uh, what comes out of that then would lead us to uh, you know is there room for another facility in Hamilton, and who's prepared to fund it and pay for it. Uh, that's always the critical question, and so uh, you know I, I'm sure that uh, that Michael has said that he's prepared to put in significant resources. I think that's very positive. Um, and then it's a matter of sitting down and, and seeing if if there's a location and if there's a if there's an, uh, an express need and if we can find a repurposing of the First Ontario Place. All of that then fits together, and uh, and we can start looking at uh, how to make that, all that happen. But it, it needs a lot of work and a lot of research, and uh, I think it needs uh, some some deep pockets to actually look at the revamping of First Ontario Place. 
and uh, and some deep pockets to uh, to build a new facility. And I'm not so sure that the city of Hamilton's got those deep pockets. So it really does have to come from the private sector. But but to your point about First Ontario Centre, uh, two things about that. First of all, can I assume from what you just said here that that determining what you want to do with that building is going to be the number one priority before you even talk about another facility? It is for me. Uh, you know, I I would think that uh, that would be a sensible thing to do. Uh, figure out what we're going to do there before we uh, delve into something else. And uh, you know what? Right now, it's functional, and uh, you know the the Bulldogs and and God bless Michael Andelar. He's been a committed to Hamilton for. Uh, for a long, long time, he's uh, he's brought a good product uh, in terms of hockey and into Hamilton. It continues, and I, I really appreciate that. And I think we ought to give him kudos for doing that. He did uh, move move a, a one franchise, but brought another franchise in uh, and made a specific commitment to have that happen. But you know what? We can't we can't be running uh, the the first Ontario Centre and another uh, another stadium over and above that. We have the Mountain Arena that we're also uh, functioning. We have a number of Twin Pad arenas, so. Uh, if if Mr. Andelar is prepared to foot the bill, that's a whole different conversation. I mean, that's uh, that's really the private sector stepping up and saying we'll do this. Uh, so there's a, a lot of variations that could happen here, and I think uh, if if we're innovative and creative and we uh, we look at the entire picture. Uh, the whole arena picture, then, uh, you know, we can come up with some solutions. But your statement there that it's functional right now, First Ontario Centre is functional, there were those who would take a different opinion on that and say, no, it's not, that it's antiquated, uh, that it's, it's, it's not falling down, not yet, but, but by the same token, those who manage that facility for you, those who are tenants in that facility for you, mm-hmm. tell you it's not functional right now, that it's outdated and it's, it's not what you need in a 21st century enterprise. Sure, and uh, but to invest, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in it with in the absence of an NHL franchise, I'm I'm not so sure is justifiable. So, if uh, if if there's a prospect for something like the NHL to come here, then everyone will be tripping over themselves to do do something positive with that facility. In my view, I think that on the short term, we need to make sure that it's functional and working properly. So uh, the escalators have to work. There's no room in my in my view for uh, you know having a facility sitting there that uh, you know it doesn't function as it as it was originally built. Uh, it's still a great venue for concerts and it, it's still a great venue for hockey. It may not be perfect for for the kind of hockey that we're displaying right now because uh, the the size is overwhelming in terms of the product that's on the ice. But uh, it's what we've got at the moment, and uh, I think there's a lot more work that has to happen before we make any dramatic changes in terms of how, how that all operates. All right, and we all know that there was a consultant hired. Jasker Kajafki, of course, mm-hmm. was involved in that. He uh, attracted a number of private sector investors to come in to write the report, not to necessarily invest in any work that had to be done there. Mm-hmm. So that's that's sitting there. Why is this stalled? I mean, this is a city-owned facility. This is an asset. And the longer the council drags their heels on this, the older it's going to get, the more decrepit it's going to get. Yeah, well, so I'm 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 interested in moving forward, uh, uh, you know, to put some resources into uh, going to the next level of study. And unfortunately, it, it does take some research and some some compiling of uh, potential partners and and, uh, and financiers to look at what's possible here. So that work needs to happen. I would I'm uh, I'm very keen on having uh, you know I, I I would say that Jasper has done a great job of uh, doing the first phase. Uh, I see no reason not to get onto the second phase, but. Council supreme on these issues, and uh, if they're uh, they're not particularly interested in going to next steps, then uh, then we don't go to next steps. But uh, I, you know, sooner or later, we're going to have to deal with this issue because it is aging. It is uh, you know twenty five plus years old, and uh, certainly the uh, the the maintenance and repair costs are are mounting, and we need to stay on top of that. But at the same time, it is probably uh, a, a, an oversized facility 
for the kind of hockey that's being played there right now. And I think that's Mr. Andalauer's issue, and we'll see if we can deal with that somehow. I, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but one other question, then we're going to move on to other topics with some of our callers. Mm-hmm. But when you look at a situation like this, uh, it's it's inevitable that parallels are going to be drawn between this and the stadium debate. And and I don't want to dig all that up again. I, I suffice to say, it didn't go well in, in a lot of different ways for mm-hmm. a lot of people. I don't know anybody that was really happy with the outcome of that and or the, nor the way that it was handled. Uh, is there a concern now that now that Mr. Andelar has talked about this facility, uh, that we're going to go down that road again? And has council learned anything from the stadium experience that they can apply to, to this discussion? Well, I mean, I, 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 I'm still in therapy on the whole stadium issue, as you know, Bill. Uh, uh, so, so I, I mean, I've, I've learned some lessons. I also learned that, uh, that sports franchises tend to have these issues rise, uh, you know, not, not, not too uh, long before well, this, election. This was an not, election issue not, in Calgary last month. Bef- not too long before election time. So, and in Calgary, uh, there was a considerable amount of pushback on the uh, on the uh, the stadium or the arena owner and the hockey team owner saying, you know what, we uh, we are not prepared to put in a gazillion dollars into this kind of facility. It's going to have to be private sector driven p- p- predominantly. And I would think that would be the view of most people in the city of Hamilton. That uh, they, you know they they love their, uh, their they love their sports. Some of them do. Uh, they they appreciate the fact that an arena is a valuable asset uh, in a, in a community. But at the same time, uh, they see it as a, as more of a private sector initiative than a public sector initiative. So uh, we're going to have that debate, and uh, you know, if we have to have that debate all over again, Ella Stadium. Well, there there we are. That's kind of the way that that process works. All right, other stuff to talk about here in our remaining moments with Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger uh, from Dave on email bkelly at nine hundred chml dot com. Uh, the city finally did the right thing and hired fifty four new bus drivers for four million dollars. Now it's time to step up and hire the more paramedics that are required right now. Multiple studies say we need $4 million of city money, which would allow for seven more ambulances 24-7. There's a 50-50 sharing concept with the province on these things, is there not? There is, and uh, and uh, we we have sorry, excuse me we have added uh, paramedics over the years. Uh, you know, I think the most recently three three or four years ago we added a number of them and a number of additional ambulances. Uh, we just added an, a, an, enough money to do uh, another ambulance on the on the road, so that the investment in this uh, area has been growing significantly, and uh, and we appreciate all the great work that the, that our paramedics do. Uh, but you know what? Costing issues are costing issues, and uh, we're trying to manage a system that uh, that is has to do with uh, offloading of uh, of patients at the hospital, and that's been an ongoing challenge. The hospital capacity issues is an ongoing challenge, and so we're working with Hamilton Health Sciences and with our chief uh, Sanderson and others to see how we can wade our way through that without necessarily uh, you know continuing to throw money at the issue but trying to sort out some of the barriers that are that exist as a result of uh, uh, of the offloading issues that uh, that makes it more difficult to keep uh, a full ambulance fleet out on the street on a regular basis so we're we're we're, we're taking steps to do that um, the, uh, you know, I, I would say the HSR was a unique circumstance that uh, I'm, I'm not going to get into the nitty gritty, but uh, I think we, we've got a short term solution here. Um, uh, you know, having people work 60 or 68 hours of overtime on a, on a regular basis is not sustainable and not not reasonable, quite frankly. And we certainly don't want that happening on the paramedic side. So we, we rely on our chief to come and give us some advice as to what the needs are and how we can manage through that. And if he uh, if he believes that uh, there's a significant resource 
that needs to be put into place. Uh, he'll be coming coming to tell us about it. Uh, so far, I haven't heard but, but that. But isn't that apples and oranges? I mean, with all due respect to transit users, and, and I'm not trying to give short shift to their concerns, it's one thing to say I have to wait an extra 50 minutes for the bus because this one was full. If the ambulance doesn't show up on time, people die. Surely. Surely, and uh, you know, hopefully that uh, that doesn't happen. And uh, we've had, I think, one instance where that that may have been the issue. Uh, I would say, by and large, we're uh, we're we're ready, willing, and able, and and capable of uh, managing the system as as it as it is today. Could we always use more resources in all areas? Absolutely, it makes it a lot easier potentially. But uh, but also uh, you know managing the, uh, the the costs and the bills is uh, is also important. So that's uh, always the balancing act that we uh, that we have to operate under, and uh, we'll we'll continue to do that going forward. Try to squeeze in some more calls here before we have to finish off. Tony, thanks for holding on. How are you doing this morning? Oh, I'm doing all right, Bella. Did you have a good vacation? Uh, well, <laughs> sort of. Yeah, we we moved, and anybody who's gone through that in the oh, last little while would know the the, the nightmare. Yeah, that, I'll, it'll all be in the book. But yeah. anyway, <laughs> your uh, best your, best vacation ever, right, Bill? <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, two quick points for the mayor. He was just talking about the transit uh, with the LRT coming in. Something was said about the, there's going to be 44 job losses to the HSR. Uh, and uh, since we're complaining about that uh, we haven't got enough people uh, on buses and so on and so forth right now, that may or may not be an answer to the uh, bus driver shortage, but uh, those 44 people are going to be out of a job. Uh, the other point is that uh, over the time, uh, Fred, that uh, we, on the U.S. Steel side, uh, mm-hmm. Stelco, Mm-hmm. Uh, there was taxes that were deferred through the CCAA, uh, $9 million and so on and so forth. Uh, do Have you, uh, as a city, received their money yet? Uh, we've received a commitment that that is going to be paid. I, I, I'd have to check to see if we actually received the money in hand, but, uh, but uh, through the court process, uh, it was a... Uh, a, a, a a decision by the judge to uh, to ensure that the city of Hamlet got the uh, the back taxes that we were uh, claiming, and I think it was it was more in the area of twenty million dollars, actually, not nine. Okay. And so, uh, yes, the commitment is there. I don't know if we have it in hand, but we should have it shortly. How about the water uh, that they were using, and uh, they uh, you, like they they said that they they reevaluated the property and so on and so forth. Uh, now that U.S. Steel or Selco Canada. Hmm. Uh, has uh, downsized per se on the property. Right. right. Uh, how is that going to affect the uh, tax level and uh, that kind of stuff? Well, I mean it, uh, that that all depends. And so uh, you know what, uh, what whatever that land gets used into or, or go, gets put into use on is going to be the issue in terms of what the tax uh, loading is going to be. Uh, there is a there is a an owner right now called Landco. Uh, which is kind of an organization set up by the province of Ontario to manage this, and uh, they're uh, they're required to pay taxes. I I, uh, I I do understand that they're looking for a reassessment on the property based on the current use, as other large uh, uh, landowners have done in the city of Hamilton. That's certainly become a pressure on our budgets uh, each and every year. So it is an issue, and uh, it's one we're going to have to deal with uh, sooner rather than later. Thanks so much for the call, Tony. I'm going to get one more in here. We're just about out of time. Peter, let me uh, squeeze you in here. Go ahead for the mayor. Yeah, how are you today? Well, Good. thanks. Good, Peter. Good. Uh, you're talking about putting more ambulances, uh, everything else. What are you going to do? Just uh, put another ambulance in a parking lot at the hospital? Why don't you start at the source? Which is what? 
get the get the patients uh, dealt, get off get get them off the uh, ambulances so the ambulance can go. Well, you that's gotta, you got to start at the you got to start at the hospital. You you all the councils do you, you keep cutting weight uh, uh, care at the hospitals, so you're just making a bigger parking lot in the. In the hospital. So, Peter, right. we, we, we're not in charge of uh, managing the hospital. So we, we work with Hamilton Health Sciences, and I appreciate your comment because it, it is really the crux of the matter, is uh, how do we get to offload those patients? And that's been, that's been the problem. And uh, that's one that uh, we, ha- we thought we had a fix for for a time so that uh, there was a, a, actually an identified nurse that was uh, uh, brought in and paid for jointly b- by the province and the Hamilton Health Sciences. To uh, to help offload those uh, those patients and get them uh, get those ambulances back on the street. So that is the issue, and that's why we're not quick to uh, to uh, you know put uh, you know a ton more ambulances on the street and hire more people. Uh, we, if we can resolve that issue, and that's certainly been a challenge for a number of years, then we we will have made some great headway in getting those ambulances out onto the street and uh, into service where they need to be. Thanks so much for the phone call, and uh, thank you, Mr. Mayor, for the time today. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger, by the way, if you didn't get through today, we apologize to those that uh, we couldn't get on the air. Uh, They can reach you at Hamilton City Hall, right? Yes, 905-546-4200. Anytime, uh, or uh, mayor at hamilton.ca. Send me an email. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Let's talk about taxes. Uh, it's, It's one of those flash words, right? As soon as you say taxes... People say, well, there's there's a reaction. I mean, that's all there is to it. Nobody likes paying taxes, let's face it. But some think they're a necessity. Others think they are theft. Others think they are totally unfair. And it's a debate that has ramped up on the last little while because of, well, this Canadian government and some of the tax proposals that they have come out with. Bill Morneau, of course, the finance minister, taking a lot of heat for some of those. Uh, down in the States, they're having a very similar debate right now in Congress about proposed tax changes down there. And in both cases, the assertion from many folks is, well, this just satisfies the rich. The rich get richer, the poor get it in the back, uh, or other parts of the anatomy, I suppose. Let me bring Ian Lee into the conversation from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University to offer some insight into this. Ian, thanks for the, uh, the time. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing just fine, Bill. Thanks. Let me ask you a right, an elementary question to start this thing off. Tax fairness, is that an oxymoron? Um. Uh, no, I mean I think it's the it, it's one of those things that we strive to achieve in the tax system, but we never achieve it. I mean it's it's a it's a, a it's an idealistic goal, and uh, uh, because I mean you know it could be a lot more unfair. There are countries in the world where the tax oh, system sure. is grotesquely unfair, um, and, and and so our system isn't perfect, quite uh, understood. But uh, I, I think it's. It's a, it's more fair today than say uh, twenty or thirty or forty years ago. A couple of years ago, uh, we were in Edinburgh, Scotland, a great city, by the way. If anybody ever yeah. feels like traveling, one of the great cities in the world. Anyway, we were on George Street, and I know you know the area well. And right at the end of the street, there's a little park, and there's a statue of Adam Smith, yeah. who is uh, considered to be the father of, of modern capitalism. Yeah. And one of the guys, one of the lawyers that was on the trip with us, looked at he's looking at the statue with us, and he said he'd be rolling over in his grave if he saw the way the taxation system has changed, because he seemed to be. Uh, the architect of the quote-unquote fair tax system, but I don't know that we're there yet. Um, I mean, it really, it, it really is the larger issue. You're, you're raising the larger issue where um, 
and this is where I think it's becoming very emotional for a lot of people, and I, and I do blame the liberals on this, um, uh, prior to coming into power, the, in, in attempting to essentially demonize uh, wealthy people, in, in my view. And, and so what's happened is, is that because they've ratcheted up emotions and they've ratcheted up um, anger towards uh, people that use um, uh, tax deductions and various tax techniques to minimize their tax. And what's been lost in the conversation, I think, in our national conversation, our national debate, is the distinction between tax avoidance and tax evasion. Mm-hmm. Tax avoidance is not illegal. And it is simply not illegal. I, I, got, I get hate mail when I say this from people. When a person deducts money and puts it into an RRSP, that's tax avoidance. You're avoiding tax. It may not be. You may have to pay it back someday, but in the short run, you are avoiding tax. Tax evasion is illegal under the criminal code. But, uh, you know, the, I, I really think what's happened is this whole debate has shifted from tax, a uh, debate over tax of, uh, evasion, which everyone agrees is illegal, to a sense of demonizing people that are using tax avoidance techniques to minimize their taxes. And that's a very different kettle of fish. Well, it absolutely is. And, and to be fair, I, Ian, I don't know that there's anybody who's listening right now that wouldn't use those tools if they had them available to them or if exactly. they knew of them. Exactly. Uh, nobody just says, hey, I want to give the government more money. Uh, they, oh, that we all use that. You know, we, what's every time we do our taxes or have somebody do our taxes for us, we're always looking for deductions. How can exactly. we reduce the amount of tax? Uh, and, and we're doing that at, at, at our level of income. Yeah. Uh, so the, the, that 1% that we keep talking about right now are doing it at their level. And we may not yeah. like it because we think they should be paying more, but they're really playing the same game, just with bigger numbers. A- absolutely. And just for the record, I certainly do not have any money offshore at any tax havens for one really good reason. I don't have enough money. <laughs> <laughs> I've got one bank account in the world. <laughs> That's where my paycheck goes. <laughs> and uh, but but you're absolutely right. I mean, as people become wealthier, their affairs uh, become more complex. I'm a salaried employee with essentially no outside income, and I say essentially I teach in Europe once a year, and <laughs> big deal. And I teach once a year in China. That's it. But when you become a Bronfman, or you don't even have to become a Bronfman. How about a doctor? making a half a million or a million dollars a year, and then you start investing in uh, proper rental properties or investing in um, you know, investments um, on the capital markets, then it becomes more and more complex because the accounting is more and more complex because the tax act is more and more complex. And uh, so uh, what I'm really saying is, is that we have to be r- really careful um, when we start demonizing these people, not just the the really, really rich people, the billionaires, because there's so few of them, but also going after the upper middle class. I want to put a stat out here uh, for you, sure. Bill, uh, and for your listeners, uh, because I've actually heard you know people say, oh, you know, the rich don't pay any taxes. It's just the poor people that pay all the taxes. That's just a load of crap. It's a load of crap. I'm telling you, I've got the stats from CRA. That's the Canada Revenue Agency. And the <laughs> the top 20%, pay 50% of the taxes. And if you look at the top two quintiles, they pay over 90% of the taxes. Quintiles are percentage, so top 40%. The bottom 40% of the population pay very, 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 very little tax. There be, and that's because of, over the years, and I mean literally over the last 20, 30 years, successive ministers of finance have taken low-income people off the tax rolls. 
So every year they stand up and they say we've reduced the, uh, you know, we've taken another X thousands of Canadians off the tax rolls by simply uh, putting in the budget and in the tax act that below a certain income, you just do not pay tax. And so if you're, we're not talking HST now. Uh, we're not, we're not. No, this is income tax. We're talking income tax, which is, by the way, the largest single tax. The income tax is over 50% of all the revenues to the government of Canada. And, and so when you actually look at the taxes, the wealthy and the upper middle class pay the lion's share of taxes. I know this is extremely politically incorrect, and there's people may, who might be gnashing their teeth right now listening to me. So sorry. This is from Stats Canada, and this is from the Canada Revenue Agency. This isn't from some rich person. Um, this is the actual hard data on who pays taxes in this country. And it's a very, quote, progressive income tax system. Progressive income tax means the more you pay, the higher the rate of tax you pay. And so the, the top two quintiles pay almost all the tax, the top 40% of the population. And the bottom 60% pay very, very little income taxes. But with that in mind, and the numbers are the numbers, as you say, that's from Canada Revenue themselves. Who's fueling this fire that, that there's an inequity here and that these these people, that top 1%, aren't paying enough? I think it's being driven for political partisan gain. Um, and it was done in the last election, and I thought they were going down the wrong road. And this has nothing to do with me being a partisan. I thought they were going down the wrong road no matter what political party does it, because it's going to come back and it's going to bite you. And it's going to bite you real hard. The moment you start demagoguing on that issue, first off, and, and going after saying anybody who has a lot, makes a lot of money is a bad person, essentially, is the narrative. Well, every party has high-income people. Every party has some doctors or CEOs that support it. Um, the liberals have Bill Morneau. And, uh, and it's going to come back and boomerang on you. That's my point. And, and, and the issue is not, you know, I mean, if there was widespread evidence, of widespread cheating in Canada, I'd say, sure, let's, do, let's go after it. Again, I've looked at this because I'm doing research on this. I've looked at the OECD data, which it works with all the national statistical uh, uh, organizations, national country organizations across the Western world. So they're not dealing with fly-by-nights. They're not dealing with crooks. These are the government agencies. And we have one of the lowest uh, uh, rates of, uh, tax, uh, of, illegal, of tax evasion uh, of all the wealthy countries. Um, I can tell you something else, that, and I've learned this from studying this whole question of tax and fairness and so forth, and I know this because I've traveled a lot. The most corrupt countries where people get away with just not paying taxes in, in huge amounts, and I'm talking the rich, are in developing countries where you have real corruption, the rule of law is non-existent or barely functioning, the police are corrupt, the courts are corrupt. Russia is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Whereas you go to a Germany or a Sweden or a Canada, and the system is far more fair than it is in a developing country. And because the laws are, are, are so well enforced and we have a very mature bureaucracy in each of these countries with a mature court system and a mature revenue agency or tax agency that collects the taxes. And so I don't even buy the argument that, that there's huge and massive unfairness in Canada. This has been manufactured by politicians for partisan political gain. It is not supported empirically factually. StatsCan has determined that the underground economy in Canada is somewhere around 2.5% of GDP, which makes it one of the lowest in the world. Now, there's some people challenging StatsCan, saying they think it's too low. So some people say, no, no, it's 8%.
Europe, very mature, Western, open, transparent, honest Europe, runs around 20%. So, you know, this, this is a myth. It's, it's an urban legend that, uh, that, A, there's massive tax corruption in Canada, and, B, that the rich aren't, or the upper middle class aren't paying taxes because it's just simply not supported empirically. But you've seen the op-ed pieces, you know, over the last couple of months, I guess, now since this debate is really raging, uh, and they're suggesting that the tax system, the inequities, and that's their word, not mine, uh, in the system, are, are prohibiting growth uh, in here. That You mentioned right. the Bronfens a few minutes ago, a family that came here from, from Russia with nothing and created a ma- vast empire. Frank Stronach comes to mind. Yeah. There are others like that. Yeah. They say, you know what, that's not going to happen anymore because the system yeah. here doesn't allow people to grow. You can't go from the bottom rung up to the top anymore because the tax system just isn't fair. The rich get richer, the poor get stuck down there. That's a very good point, um, and uh, that's getting into a, a slightly different, it's related, but it's a different uh, issue, and I think it's an important issue, and that's the whole question of uh, uh, that has been studied intensively for a very long time by economists and by tax people, and that is, what degree of incentives do you need to give to the people that create wealth, create jobs, create growth, and we're talking, of course, business owners of businesses, mm-hmm. call them entrepreneurs, call them business capitalists, call them whatever you want. There's, uh, there's about 1.4 million entrepreneurs in this country, um, uh, ranging from tiny entrepreneurs that run a mom-and-pop store, you know, the corner grocery store, uh, corner confectionery, all the way up to some pretty big mid-sized companies, all the way up to the Loblaws. So, I mean, there's a range of really, really rich people all the way down to very, very tiny entrepreneurs. But the, the larger question, and you just asked it, is to what extent do you need to incentivize um, uh, businesses to, to go and invest their own money as an entrepreneur in the business and take risk? You know, and there is a debate on this. I want you to be very, you know, if you talk to people on the left or read articles on the left, they'll say these incentives are irrelevant, that people that are entrepreneurs, they just love to create, and they're very entrepreneurial, and there's some truth to that. Having said that, and the point I want to make, Bill, and I think this is really important, is when you step back, way back, and look at the big picture around the world, and if you're a young person anywhere in the world and you've got this brilliant idea for a new widget or a new, let's call it Google, in your head. Where are you going to start that business? In downtown Moscow? No. Sergey Brin, a Russian, said, I'm out of here. I'm going to the United States of America because I can build a business there and not have it taken away from me through taxation. And uh, you, you see entrepreneurs coming from France and going to the United States. You see entrepreneurs coming from Germany, from Italy, from Canada. And so my point is, is that the United States is, uh, you know, some people say it's wildly unfair there because the wealthy have all kinds of advantages, but they've created a model, a system that creates wealth like crazy, and it is one of the wealthiest countries in the world, as we all know. And so what I'm suggesting is maybe we've gone a bit too far. The balance, uh, we've gone too far to one side in Canada where we are imposing regulations and taxation on entrepreneurs who will say, you know, screw it. I'm out of here. I can cross the border in 45 or 60 minutes, and I can set up my business there and make uh, a ton more money than here in Canada. And I think that's what we've gone as we, and I don't have any investments in any company and I don't consult anybody, but I think we've gone too far on on one side of this equation. But where do you separate and how do you separate? I got about a minute and a half left here. The rhetoric from the reality. 
It's very, very difficult because, I mean, as soon as you get into that whole thing about, quote, fairness and social justice, it just seems to bring almost, the, or paradoxically, it seems to bring the worst in people out. It makes people more bitter and angry and bitter twisted and so forth. Instead of stepping back and saying, wait a minute, we, you know, what are we trying to achieve with this? Are we, is the purpose of our tax system to go and beat people up and punish them because they've been successful? I am not rich. I've never been rich, and I have no desire to be rich. I mean, if somebody threw it at me, I wouldn't probably turn it away, but I've never <laughs> had any desire to go out and say, gee, I want to get really filthy rich. But I don't begrudge somebody that has gone out and done it, like the young entrepreneur that started Shopify here in Ottawa. I just have an extraordinary admiration. The people that started Google, um, Steve Jobs that started Apple, Mike, you know, Bill Gates that started Microsoft. I, I don't begrudge these people for having an idea and developing it into a very large company that employs millions and or hundreds of thousands of people. Ian Lee at the Sprott School of Business. Always a pleasure, Ian. Thanks so much for this today. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Over the weekend, uh, Scott Radley, of course, who you hear on The Scott Radley Show every weeknight at 7 o'clock here on CHML, and, of course, you read his uh, fine articles in the sports pages of the Hamilton Spectator, uh, wrote a piece uh, about a conversation he had with Michael Andlar, the owner of the Hamilton Bulldogs, in uh, which Michael said that it's time for Hamilton to build a new arena to replace First Ontario Centre. Uh, and that, of course, uh, got an immediate reaction. Uh, mayor Eisenberger referred to it just a couple of minutes ago uh, when he was here for the Mayor's Town Hall. But uh, I want to get a little more in-depth into this uh, <laughs> because of what happened with the stadium issue and because I think this is a necessary discussion to have. Scott Radley, who wrote the piece uh, and the host of the Scott Radley Show, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to give us his perspective. Scott, how are you doing today? I am great, Bill. Before we start, excellent job on Remembrance Day. Great, great work oh, thank you. you. Thank, it's always a pleasure doing that show. We have a great CHML crew down there, and and, and I got to tell you, the city staff and the Veterans uh, Association do a great job putting that together every year, and it's it's a real treat for us. Well, you did a, you did great work. So people thank you. Be, next year, instead of watching TV or if they can't go, turn on CHML. So you did great work. Thanks so much. I really do appreciate that. And, and when I got finished yesterday, because I was you know, busy unpacking over the last two or three days. There I open the Hamilton Spectator, and there's this piece from Scott Radley uh, about Michael Andlar and the Bulldogs. Now, what, what motivated you to, to actually to have this discussion with Michael and, and, and get into this topic? Uh, it actually started as a completely different discussion about something else, and uh, in the middle of that discussion, he made a comment that my ears perked up a little about uh, the future of, you know, where the future of, Bulldogs or the arena or whatever else, and I said, well, are you saying what I think you're saying? And that sort of launched us into this uh, much broader discussion about, uh, about you know, a future arena or the current arena or future upgrades or... You know, you know what's interesting about this as I read the piece, though, Scott? Uh, it was like a flashback, and it took me back to about two years ago at, at First Ontario Centre... Uh, and and Rebecca and I were there as actually as Michael's guest. He had us over to the private box. He just wanted to sit down. We you know hadn't really had a chance to get together. Matter of fact, you popped your head in there because you just come back from holidays, uh, and and we were talking for a few minutes. Yeah, and then I Michael got there. Yeah. We spent the better part of that evening uh, watching the Bulldogs play uh, and talking about the possibility of a new arena. So this is not a new idea for Michael, is it? No, no. It's been talked about for oh, a decade, and I mean certainly not in a uh, a serious way, more of an ethereal pie-in-the-sky kind of idea. And I, that's one of the things I specifically asked him, because I said, you know, we have had this discussion, and we have 
he has bandied around the idea that, you know, first Ontario center is too big and there's other issues. And I said, is, is it different now? Are you now at a different place where you would be more seriously prepared to begin doing something for real as opposed to just thinking about it? He goes, absolutely. That was his exactly, absolutely. And he is, he says that he has, he has a large file in his office and has begun looking into this and researching it and, this is not a let's throw something against the wall and let's, you know, bandy it around a bit. He, he, to me anyway, sounds very much ready to do something and according to him to invest this significant amount of his own money into this thing if, uh, if the city is also interested in getting involved. Well, yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. And and I'm yeah, when, when I, I asked this with the mayor. Yeah, when I asked this of Mayor Eisenberger just a couple of hours ago here on the program, uh, I, I brought up the ghost of the stadium debate, yeah. uh, and and he talked. You know, he mentioned uh, that he was still in therapy about the stadium debate and the issues that went on. Uh, suffice to say, it didn't go well. It wasn't handled well by everybody involved in that whole situation. Uh, and and I'm concerned, Scott, that we could be going down the same road here. Well, there's two there's two ways you can look at this, depending on your point of view of concern. One is that you head down the same path where everybody involved has a different point of view and a different uh, thing they want, and you know, location becomes a huge fight and size and on and on and on. So that's one thing. You get into this, and now everybody has their piece of meat that they want to carve off the carcass here. The other is that. If we do decide, and I'm not sure that a lot of people, including listening to the mayor, him, um, that this is a discussion worth having, even if we, th- there could be a lot of people who say, you know what, that stadium debate, I don't even want to open Pandora's box. I don't want to even have the discussion about this because of what might happen if we do. And so that could be the second side of it, that there's a lot of people who are so put off by any discussion of any arena or stadium. And certainly, Bill, look, when, when uh, Jasper Kajaski brought that consultant's report in March, I believe it was, of this year, looking into First Ontario Centre, how much discussion did that actually generate at City Council? Not much. Not very much. It was get that on the table, get that voted, get that gone, let's not even talk about this. There was clearly zero appetite for the city to pay, I think, well, there were three options uh, for First Ontario. One was basically do nothing. One was pay $68 million to bring it up to uh, current levels at least, and one was 200 and something to make it an NHL st- uh, level arena. And those discussions went absolutely nowhere. They, they disappeared as fast as they arrived. So there's, there's, it's, it's hard to imagine there's a lot of appetite on council for this. Well, let's, right off the top, you get that third option out of there. I mean, the, the NHL sure. in Hamilton, I'm sorry, there's an incongruity there. It's not going to happen. What we need to do is look at this from a pragmatic standpoint, and and I don't know that that happens a whole lot at City Hall these days, Scott. But but the the approach I tried to take with the mayor was look at I don't care if they're playing tiddlywinks or hockey or or they're doing concerts there or whatever they're doing there. Okay, it could be a yoga class. It doesn't matter. It's a city-owned facility that's falling apart and and is deteriorating, and it's going to take a huge amount of money to bring it back up to speed for whatever activity you want to have. And if they're not going to spend that money then you and I both know that in four or five years, whoever's on council, probably the same people, are going to have this discussion about, well, now it's falling over. What are we going to do? 
Okay, so I want to answer your, or mention your first point about the NHL because I agree, and you and I have had this discussion numerous times. I agree with you, the NHL is not coming. And if, let's say that down the road, because one of the arguments about keeping First Ontario Centre always has been, well, what if the NHL is ready to come? Well, we are now, the, the arena is now 32 years old. I think it would be the second oldest arena in the league today. If the NHL today, Bill, was to decide to come to Hamilton, we would almost need to tear it down anyway and start by building a brand new arena. Well, and, and isn't that one of the that, that's one of the things that we need to clear up here? They say bring it up to NHL standards. You and I both know Scott, and I'm not an engineer, nor are you. But basically, that means just gut it and and just have the four walls standing and rebuild it from the inside out. Look at those photos. Well, they're not photos. Look at those artist conceptions. Do you remember the ones when Jim Balsillie was talking about redoing yeah, it? Yeah. It looked nothing like First Ontario Centre. The outside was changed, the inside was changed, everything was changed. It was a new arena. If 10 years from now, and that would be, you know, who knows what can happen, but if in 10 years the NHL and NHL team failed and decided we're moving to Hamilton. Now, there's a brand new arena in Quebec City, and there's going to be, there's owners we're hearing about now in Seattle, and Houston is showing signs of wanting a team. All those would be ahead of Hamilton on the pecking order for the NHL. But if in 10 years, an NHL team decided it wanted to come here. Now the arena is 42 years old. You have to tear it down and build a new one anyway. So take that thing, take that discussion off the table that somehow we are holding ground in case an NHL team wants to come. If it comes, we're talking brand new arena. Doesn't matter what. So the second point then is, the second option on that report was a $68 million upgrade to the arena to bring it up to reasonably modern standards well so here's where this thing now gets interesting with michael Landlauer coming forward now you've got a situation and this is where i think at least city has to have the discussion and if you're talking about the city saying okay let's say let's say we could even whittle it down to 50 million dollars if we could get a, a, an upgrade to cops coliseum first ontario center for 50 million but most of the things that are happening in this city, most of the events, there's a few giant ones, but most of them are in the, the concerts, eight, nine, ten thousand 10,000-person range uh, on a good day. If we had a brand-new facility and it would cost the city, let's say, $30 million to do that as opposed to 50 or $60 million, you know, I'm not, I'm not arguing one way or the other whether city should do it. I'm saying you should at least be willing to have that discussion and see... Will we have a brand-new, state-of-the-art, usable facility somewhere in town that is not requiring constant upgrades and constant maintenance and constant fixes from the city money that could cost them a whole lot less if they partner with a private businessman or consortium? That's, to me, at least a discussion you should have. Whether you just what you decide to do after that, that's up to you. But if that's a discussion, I don't think you can just poo-poo and say, forget it, we're not even going to talk about it. No, but when they talk about infrastructure deficits, and, and you and I both know that's that, that's the key phrase at City Hall these days, and, and yeah. it's a legitimate concern. Uh, and That conjures up images of sewers and cracked sidewalks, and, and that's that's all part of it, but it is also city-owned facilities, and that includes that arena. And, and for them to simply say, well, I don't even want to go there because I might get phone calls into my office, means they're being derelict in their duty. That's a city-owned facility that needs to be maintained and upgraded, just like all the other city-owned facilities. They didn't seem to hesitate to put all the money into City Hall, 
But now, you know, are you going to turn your back on this facility simply because they play hockey there? Oh, Bill, you um, you know you you go right to the heart of it because yes, yeah, City Hall there was there didn't seem to be an issue. Um, th- that one had to be done. That had to be done. Let's say, and let me use another example again. Let us say again, we're talking five years, ten years down the road. Let's say they were to discover something at First Ontario Centre that needed a now ten billion dollar fix. That there was a, a you know something that really had to be done. But now you're just doing the now you're just maintaining you're just upgrading but it's a constant state of having to fix stuff this is the this is you know people say well it's still standing it's still there it can still be used yes of course it can but at some point you do just like your house at at some point you say do we just keep patching this or do we actually fix it or build a new one of whatever that is if our if an appliance that you have is needing two hundred dollars in upgrades every year at some point do you say maybe we should just spend more, but buy the new one so that we don't have to keep paying for these fixes every year. And in the long run, it might actually cost you less. I don't know that that's the case. Again, this is why I think the very least you should be sitting down and having this discussion, finding out Michael Enlauer did not tell me in a dollar figure what he was willing to put in. He said a substantial amount. Um, He made it very clear to me that he's not, well, what his suggestion was, don't, I'm not going to come into this thing, ask for the moon, and then suddenly get all tight with my wallet when the discussions get too far down the road that they can't really be stopped. Because he's never done that. I mean, even even when work needed to be done on that arena and the city was dragging their heels on it, Michael wrote a check. You know, you need the new ribbon around there, the advertising ribbon, Michael paid for it. Do you want to fix up the scoreboard? Oh, we can't do that. Well, I'll pay for it then. I mean, this guy's got a track record now of saying, look, I'm willing to jump in here. But I'd like to see the city jump in, too. Yeah. I, at some point where the city is going to have to make measure this, I think, is it, it be, less becomes an issue of do we want a new building just to have bells and whistles. Um, it, it's less about that now than over the next 20 years, let's say, how much money is the city going to have to put into this building to maintain it and keep it to even a moderately up-to-date standard? And if the amount that they would estimate it's going to take is the same or close to the same as what it would be, what they would need to put in to do their part in a public-private partnership with him to build a new, smaller, but brand new arena. That's, again, there's the discussion. Does it make more sense then? And somebody said, well, you know what? The city can't afford this. Well, I, I agree. We have no money in this city. I mean, for whatever reason, and and you've talked about this on your show many many times. Um, we just don't have money in this city for these kind of things. However, someone pointed out to me, and I put it in the piece on uh, on the weekend. What if, let's say, first Ontario Centre? Because clearly, when Ann Lauer was talking about this, he didn't. He did, he gave no locations. Others were thrown around by councillors and stuff. It would not, in all likelihood, be on the same site. You knock down First Ontario Centre and sell or lease that land, do something with it for development, some of that money could go into it and you would probably have money left over. I mean, it is there are ways to do this. And that downtown property, with the way we keep hearing the downtown is being redeveloped and growing, that would be a sweet piece of land for someone to do something interesting on. 
given what's happened here, and we just talked about the Leuna uh, development that's going on right downtown, and, and of course what's going on with the Kanata and, and other situations like this, you've seen the cranes in the sky right now. If the city all of a sudden declared that land around First Ontario Centre a surplus, you got to know that somebody's going to snatch that up, and there's going to be some building and development, and the city's going to accrue tax revenue from that. Uh, now, that's that's down the road a little bit. That's not going to happen the day that they decide to do that. Of course not. But but that was supposed to be the plan with the stadium. Now, here we go with that uh, that comparator again, too. They were supposed to build the stadium at a different site, tear down Iverwin, and maybe sell it to a developer and make some money. Uh, it didn't work out that way. I mean, the, the, the stopping point, as far as I'm concerned, and I'm sure Michael told you this, uh, is Michael Andelar, that is, is quite frankly, is city council going to play ball here? And that doesn't mean he's not, he's not, he's not asking them, hey, write a check, fix my arena for me. He's simply saying, I want to partner with these guys, but I want to partner with them. And that means they're going to have to ante up too. And I don't know that anybody on council wants to do that now. Well, let me throw out one other crazy idea for you, Bill. That And he, Michael Allauer did not bring this up. I'm throwing this out just as a, hmm. What if city, city council decides we're not going to get involved in this, and somehow he was able to put together a completely private consortium, get a couple other investors, and they built their own. They got zoning because really how are you going to stop them if there's no good reason? And they built their own 7,000-seat arena move the Bulldogs out of First Ontario Centre, and then compete for concerts with First Ontario Centre. So all the smaller ones, yeah, the Paul McCartney's and the Garth Brooks still go there, but you're now having a competitive situation. What happens to First Ontario Centre then? The lights are going to be out more often than they're going to be on. You are suddenly, because I think that most concerts that are coming through, again, are smaller than what you need at First Ontario Centre and in a brand new facility with all the venues, everything else. A lot of those people would want to, I would think, go there. What happens then if you now have a private arena competing with a city-owned or city-managed, because Spectra now does it, but now if you're in the city, you're going, wait a second, if we're going to have this potentially happen, and I don't know if that could ever happen, does it now benefit us when we go back and go, wait a second, if we ended up in that situation with an arena that now is really not being used all that much, do we need to backtrack again and go, well, that seems to be self-defeating. Let's revisit this thing and talk about it again because we can't have that situation. I don't know if that could ever happen. I don't know if there's the private money to go whole hog in this thing and to get the land and everything else. But, boy, it, it becomes a – if you can imagine that scenario – and what that would do to First Ontario Centre. Now you've got this big, giant arena that appropriately is painted white because it would be a white elephant right downtown. Well, and and again, Michael has not said this. Michael Andelar has not repeated this. It wasn't in the piece. Uh, and Nor did he say it when I had that conversation with him a couple of years ago. But let's face it, the reality here is that uh, junior hockey franchises are a pretty hot commodity, and there are other communities that would be willing and maybe even able to partner with them, and maybe not so far away from Hamilton, uh, that might be willing to say, hey, we can uh, break bread and then break ground on this, and it could be mutually beneficial, in which case Hamilton loses. And then once again, you've got an arena with no main tenant. I'm not suggesting that's, and, and Michael's not suggesting that's going to happen, but that's an option, and the city yeah, no, better realize yeah, that as well. Bill, I want to say, and you just did, but I want to stress, at the, to this, in, when I talked to him, at no point, did he make the threat that I'm picking up my team and leaving if you don't do this? And we've heard a lot of owners in a lot of sports make those threats and make those, uh, you do it for me or else. There was no hint 
of that. This was not a build me an arena or I'm gone kind of thing. We've seen that way too often, and I think most people blanch at that kind of blackmail. That was never an issue in this discussion. No, not at all. But but that's a that's an option too. We talked to you know we began the conversation. Now we're ending it with options. And if the city just simply decides to sit on their hands and say, "Well, we're not sure," we're not uh, that could be a reality too. Because that, listen, uh, other people have that phone number too, and they're going to be talking to him about possibilities. Anyway, great piece. You got the conversation going once again, and I think that's absolutely necessary. Uh, thanks so much for this, and of course we'll be listening to you tonight, seven o'clock, to see how uh, this rolls out. Yeah, I got to get Donnie Robertson's take on this too. Is he coming on the show tonight? <laughs> he will be there tonight. Yeah, we'll be chatting about it. Excellent, Scott Radley. You can hear him seven o'clock tonight here on CHML. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from nine to noon on AM nine hundred CHML.